0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. Good morning, C4 Church, and good morning to the many of you watching online here and around the world. We're glad that you're joining us. If you got your Bible this morning, we'd love you to turn to John chapter 2. If you got it virtually or physically, that'd be great. You can navigate or turn there. I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're guests here today or you're part of our community, to week chapter three as we're going through the gospel or the book of John. This is a book that was written by Jesus' closest friend, and it was written so we, as we just saw in this video, might actually believe that we would trust, that we would give allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. So far, if you've been walking this journey with us, we've seen an amazing and a quick overview of history. John starts his conversation not in time but what we call eternity past in the time before time was and then he took us to the creation of the world and then he quickly runs us forward actually to the season we're in now into Christmas and then last week we stopped with the story of John the Baptist. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, 29 years after his born, comes onto the scene and he begins to preach, and he prepares, and he baptizes, and suddenly, of course, he gets so much attention that the religious leaders come and confront him about his authority. What does John the Baptist do at that moment of grand fame as thousands are coming to him and thousands are being baptized? He does not point to himself. He is not interested in the spotlight because he has come as a voice for another person. He is preparing the way for another person. It is never about him. It is about someone else. And at that moment we saw last week, his cousin shows up at 30 years old and he points. And he says, that man right there, He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I have come to prepare you for him. If you read the passage later, Jesus calls Andrew and then John, the man who would write this book, then Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. They begin to form this small community of those who are beginning to maybe believe that Jesus is more than prophet. Well, our story begins today and takes us in two very unexpected directions. Actually, we show up today at two different parties. One, a wedding, and the other one, the high religious party of the Jewish festival. Basically, their version of Christmas, Passover. Now, most weddings are full of excitement and anticipation and new hope and politics with mother and mother-in-law. Right, everyone? But Hebrew weddings up the drama and the excitement. And if we're going to understand John chapter 2, we need to actually go back to a time that we've never been. See, weddings in those days are very different in some ways than they are today in the West. One historian th- wrote this, marriages in the near, ancient Near East were arranged by parents, not by the couple. A contract was prepared, vows were spoken in a synagogue, tokens were exchanged, and then the couple would return to their home. Though they were legally married, they had to live separately between two months and a year, and you thought you had some problems. They're legally married, but they can't be man and wife at the end of that waiting period the groom would get all of his friends some things haven't changed and they'd go at night they they'd light torches and they'd give a huge procession down to the wife's home and and there'd be color and pomp and singing and after speeches yes there were speeches even two thousand years ago of goodwill and blessing was pronounced over the couple finally the groom could take his bride home But it doesn't end there. Actually, the whole family and and friends showed up at that house for a whole week to party. Some of you thought it was uncomfortable that you stayed in the same hotel on your wedding night with everyone. They show up at your house for seven whole days. They're there, and it's a huge, absolute party in in the community. The groom's family is expected to provide enough food and drink for everyone. Now, this is a grand event in their life like it would be for ours. They were considered, interestingly, king and queen for a week. Actually, they would wear crowns, they would dress in bridal robes, and their word was law. But here's the point we miss, especially as Westerners. Most of these people getting married, and especially today, they're poor. I don't just mean poor, poor, I mean really poor. And this would be the only time in their whole life that they would experience two things. Two things that you take for granted every single day. Number one, this would be the only time in their life they would experience lots of food. What we do day in and day out was never their experience. And so for one week, it's guaranteed in their whole life they're going to have lots to eat. And here's the second thing this is the only time in their life that they're in control. This is the only time they're really king and queen. No one is going to control them. See, the poor do not get to do what they want. They are basically owned by those who are wealthy. And in this case, this is the only week they get to be in control of their destiny. And so we walk actually into this experience. And Jesus is about to walk into this experience. But what is unfolding in front of us is a major social disaster. Jesus comes to this wedding. It's probably a wedding of a close relative or friend because it's in Cana. Cana is only four miles away from Nazareth, and so it's a family affair. Hear the word of God this morning. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mom was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. All is happening as it should Lights, dancing, the big week, a long party, and then, like I mentioned, social disaster we miss. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to Jesus' Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. And we go, so what? But we miss the power of what's taking place here. First, you just can't run down to the local LCBO and buy some more. Second, this is a major breach of etiquette. Hospitality is considered a sacred duty in this culture, and at a wedding even more. When I was in Israel a few years ago, a long time ago now, I was in the, was in the West Bank, and I walked up to this home of this Palestinian couple, I'd never met them before, complete stranger, and I was shocked by what happened next. They immediately welcomed me in. They sat me down. They made me a meal, made me coffee, and they talked to me for two whole hours. I didn't know what was going on. In Canada, I would have been removed. But I suddenly got it. See, even today in the Middle East, hospitality is part not only of the culture. It's a sacred duty. It's what you do to another human being. And at a wedding, oh, at a wedding, it's heightened. There's no wine left, which means hospitality is being violated, and I found out as I studied this week that actually the other family and your friends could sue you if you didn't provide enough wine for the week. Wine's not about getting plastered, by the way, getting drunk out of your mind. See, in Scripture, wine is a symbol of joy and celebration. Psalm 104, 15 says, wine gladdens the heart of man. Oil makes his face shine, the bread that sustains his heart. Or, or Isaiah 55, one, actually the very words that Jesus would begin to use to preach eternal life, shows the generosity of God and the joy of God when he says, Come all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come and, and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Wine is always associated not only with joy, but even the generosity of God himself. So what we have unfolding here at this great party is terrible. It's serious. It's legal. It's social. It's spiritual. I love John. He uses the very normal problems of life to always point to our own spiritual conditions of every day. This is a description of what the human condition is without Jesus. Since wine is about joy, if there's no wine, then there is no heaven-given joy, unless, of course, Jesus shows up and provides it. Mary shows up and looks at her son and basically saying, son, they have no joy. At this special moment, they should be filled with everything good, everything happy. This is the only time they get this son and their joy has run out. True physically, true spiritually. How does Jesus respond? Woman, why do you involve me? My time has not come yet. Now, we read this and we go, hmm, is Jesus being a little bit of a donkey towards his mom? Because when you read that, I'd use another word, but it's being podcast. So, (laughs) you read this and it seems like Jesus is being a little snippy. Mom, but what this really means is, dear mother, it's a deep term of endearment in Greek. And he comes to his mom and looks her in the eyes and says, Listen, Mom, why are you involving me? What's between you and me right now? See, my time has not come yet. But don't forget, because we're at the Christmas story now. We're in the Christmas season. Mary has been sitting on the biggest secret of history for 30 years. She knows something about her son that no one else knows. My son isn't like all the other kids. He's special. (laughs) Like you wouldn't believe. And he's coming onto the scene, and she thinks this is the perfect opportunity for him to come out of the Messiah closet and declare to his closest family and friends, he is the real deal. So he turns around and he says, Mom, my time has not come yet. But there's a deeper thing going on here. One historian writes, Likely, She actually saw this present crisis not only as a perfect opportunity for him to come on the scene, but for him to burst onto the political scene, to stir the people to action, to remove the Romans and take up his rightful military place. See, even his mom doesn't get it. Immediately, Jesus, by this nice rebuke, deals with three misconceptions about the Messiah. I love when Chuck Swindoll wrote this. First, the Messiah's glory would come at the expense of his death, not a result of some dazzling show of power. Second, the Messiah's glory would come from God, never from people. And third, the Messiah's glory would take place on God's timetable, not on hers and not on anyone else's. Jesus says to Mom, My time hasn't come yet. What does Mom do? Well, she does what every proud mom does. She ignores her son (laughs) because he's gifted. She's got the bumper sticker, right? My son's the Messiah, (laughs) right, and acts anyway. She goes to those who are working the party, the servants of the time, verse 5, and says to them, do whatever he tells you. He's my son. So what does Jesus do? Would he get angry at mum? Would he ignore his mum? Would he sit her down again and start explaining it? John actually doesn't go there at all. We don't even get the response. Mary says, obey my son. And then John does something that would translate in our culture like this. And suddenly he looks and there's two refrigerators sitting in the kitchen. And you go, what? He turns around and says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 or or 30 gallons. we're like, but what happened to the conversation between Jesus and the servants and Mary? But John stops us, because he wants to give us more background. See, before each meal, each guest would have their hands washed. This again was about hospitality, not just about being clean, but it's deeper than this. This is religious duty. This is the command of the religious leaders of the day and their interpretation of scripture. If you were not ritualistically clean, you could not eat with other people because eating with people was a spiritual act. So the party's in full swing, lots of food, lots of wine, all the water's been used in those jugs, and Jesus slips out and he knows what's going on behind the scenes. Verse 7. Jesus then said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Now, can you hear the inner dialogue of the servants? And this deals with the wine crisis how? Filling up jars with water, with water okay and then the next command i'm sure really convinced them that this guy was off the deep end or crazy or they were going to lose their john jobs because then he said this verse 8 then he told the servants now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the banquet go take it to the wedding planner everything's going to be great guys so they did why because they had to because they were servants the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into what wine not grape juice, wine. For all of us who grew up in Baptist churches, wine. From California, no, no, wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Interesting. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine at first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have, you know, had too much to drink, but you've saved the best until now. Now, John does not tell us how or when the miracle took place, but it took place. This is Jesus' first sign, his first miracle, and so far, do you notice it? Only his mom, his five followers, and a group of servants even know it's happened. There is no dazzling show, but the implications are huge. Watch this. Immediately when he does this, he's declaring that the old religious rituals, those old things that they had washed their hands with, they only clean you from the outside. They no longer have life. They no longer have power. But Jesus is declaring them dead because he is going to bring new wine and new life for the whole world, and he's going to break religion at its core. 180 gallons, Jesus brings it to the party. He gives 2,400 cups of new wine. When Jesus gives wine, he brings it. And he leaves no room for doubt. There's no parlor trick here. There is no way he could manipulate this. The gift was to a couple who are poor. And Jesus doesn't just replace what was missing. Do you notice that? He gives something that was even, what, better. <laughs> and he gives it so much more. The heart of our god is sometimes he just shows up because he loves us and he gives us acts of kindness because he loves us this is the first of his miraculous signs jesus performed in cana and galilee and thus he revealed his glory and his disciples they put their faith in him never forget that miracles are about deeper teaching as we as a church are beginning to understand all the gifts Never forget that miracles are not about miracles. They're about the one doing the miracles. Yes, this proves Jesus has power to change water into wine. Yes, under the power of the Holy Spirit, using the spiritual gift of acts of miracles, he, he did this, but... The point is, miracles always point us back to Jesus. Miracles, like those who witness, like John the Baptist, are always called to point us to Jesus. Jesus always, Jesus forever. Never get into the trap of putting your faith in a miracle because the miracle is there to point you to the miracle doer. The scene changes. So far, remember, John is writing that we'll all believe as readers that we'll put our trust in Jesus. He's being like a lawyer, building a case. He's beginning to show us all these different witnesses. So God the Father so far has affirmed Jesus. God the Holy Spirit has affirmed Jesus in the first two chapters. John the Baptist, now Mary, his mother, now five and some servants. They're beginning to trust, affirm. They're beginning to witness who Jesus really is. But now it's Jesus' turn. Jesus is about to now step onto the scene and declare that he himself is who other people are claiming He's about to step on the scene in the biggest party in the Jewish calendar. It says in verse 12, read it with me. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed there for a while. It was almost time for Jewish Passover, and Jesus then went up to Jerusalem. They go to Capernaum, 20 miles away. They hang out. Notice now Jesus' half-brothers are hanging out with them. You think you had complexes with your brothers and sisters? He's the Messiah, by the way, just saying, right? They're hanging out as a family. The disciples are there. Faith is beginning to build and suddenly it's Passover. The great Jewish celebration, again, their version of of Christmas. The expectancy is growing. I learned this week that it was the God-given expectation that every Jewish male had to go back to Jerusalem every year to worship. And at Passover especially, Jerusalem would grow to 3 million people. And so they go. With everyone else to go and worship and celebrate. It's like the party, the wedding on steroids. Now never forget what the temple is. Never forget. This is holy ground. This is the place where heaven and earth touch. This is the place that God decided to make his presence known. Yes, he is everywhere, but palpably he decided that place. This is the same spot where God has been met time and time again. Remember the dedication of the former temple in 1 Kings 8, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud, that's the Spirit of God, filled the temple of God, and the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the temple of God. It's this same place. And so they arrive at Passover to this temple, and Jesus, like all the others, is going to worship. But what he finds this day Is not like the wedding, not joyful, not celebration, not authentic, not miraculous, not holy, not glorious, not heaven-given power. No, no. What he finds here is dead. He finds hollow. He finds old. He finds the appearance of faith, but not the active, vital, powerful faith that is always heaven-given. It says in verse 14, these simple words. In the temple courts, he found men. Men selling cattle and sheep and and dove and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And we read that and we go, well, what's the problem? We know that they had to give financially like we just did today. And at that moment, they sacrificed animals. So what's the problem? Well, there's a huge problem. See, at this moment in history, corruption had reached a terrible height. See, you weren't allowed to come to the temple and use foreign currency because Caesar's face was on it, and so were other gods. So you had to exchange your money to get Jewish money so you could actually obey God's commands. And what started happening is when you showed up at the temple, there'd be money changers. They were like the exchange people. we meet at the airport, but even worse, if you can imagine. And they show up, and, and you'd give your money, and they would charge you two hours Two hours of work just to exchange your money, and they would continue to do that. And so if you actually wanted to exchange just two shekels, they would charge you a full day's work just to exchange your money to obey God. And so all these people trying to obey God and love God come and they show up and, and they're exchanging their money and they're getting ripped off in the name of God. And then, of course, you brought your animal, right, because you were told to do that. And, and then you had to go through these religious leaders that had been practicing for 18 months at a farm to negotiate what's a clean and unclean animal. But they also learned that even if your animal at this moment was clean, they were taught how you could tell an animal would become unclean later. So you bring a perfect dove and they go, oh, it's perfect today, but I sense it's going to be wrong in two months. I'm sorry, we can't accept it or you bring your your sheep and you brought it all the way from Rome and it's perfect and you've worked so hard to maintain all the ritualistic understanding and you bring it they go oh yes yes but you know what in 3 months it's not going to be clean so you have to buy ours instead thanks so much So people are trapped, these people are trying to worship God, and they're getting ripped off as they're trying to even exchange their money, and then their animals are are being told that they're not right, and so you have to go actually buy the animals in the temple, and oh, here it is everyone, all of this is being run by the high priest who was installed by the Romans, who is actually franchising this in the name of God. And oh, here's the other thing, don't forget, this is happening in the court of the non-Jews. So there's no room for the rest of the world to come and meet the true living God anymore because who cares about them? Because we've got God and you don't really need them so we're going to rip off our people and not even let you in. <sighs> Jesus walks in. Never forget John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He walks into his temple All these people who supposedly represent him and his father. And what he finds is huckstering and bartering and haggling. And so he loses it. And he makes a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins from the money changers. He starts flipping all sorts of tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. How dare, how dare, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? I'm sure his half-brothers are going, "Uh uh-oh. His disciples, not cheering, I'm sure in stunned silence, but Jesus' anger was wholly inappropriate. Jesus knows, since he's one with the Father, that this is violating God's glory. There is one thing God will never share with anyone. What is it? It's his glory. And all of this is taking it away. It says in verse 17, His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is angry, holy anger. This is love outworking. And this is not the act of a guy losing it in a local mall. This is not the act of a religious reformer. This is the coming of Messiah back to his own house. Jesus is exposing what appears from God but is not from God. He is crying out, that is sin, and that is sin, and that is sin. You dare touch my Father's glory. You're supposed to be a light to the nations, and this is what you've, re- you've reduced all this to. Zeal means consumed. It means to be eaten up. It means to be on fire. Jesus is burning with holy, holy love. Money is everywhere. People are running, animals. Profit is literally flying away. Confusion, shouting, and in the middle of that, the religious leaders show up. I'm sure the sellers were shocked or angry. I'm sure the disciples were either exhilarated, shocked, or angry, and Jesus isn't the leaders come and notice they're not going to challenge him on the rightness of what he did they challenge him about what authority the religious leaders show up and the jews demanded of demanded of him this what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this by what rule by what regulation by what ritual do you preach do you point do you act do you do you disrupt who do you think you are this this is our house not yours you backwater Galilean uneducated 30 year old etc etc give us a sign right now prove to us you have the right turn a bread into stone bring fire from heaven because you better bring something because if you're going to walk into our house because we know the scriptures prove something do it jesus doesn't see what's very interesting is he doesn't need to prove a sign at this moment because he's not in the wrong His words and actions enough are the sign. They're the ones who are violating the holy text. They're the ones representing and misrepresenting God. He's just standing there. I love when Chuck Swindoll again thought about this. And he said, when he does respond to them, he gives them a veiled response. And do you know why? Because Jesus does not waste his words on people who don't want to hear In fact, he didn't even speak words in order to convict skeptics or sway dissenters. See, his words are always given to do one thing, to divide an audience. Receptive hearts and hard hearts. He understood that hearing him is not an intellectual crisis, but a crisis of the will. This is how Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And the Jews responded and they said, uh, it took us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? You need to catch the hostility in these words. First of all, you would show up and even dare say that you're going to break down God's temple? And then, by the way, it took us 46 years to build this and it's not done yet. It's not finished till 63 A.D. And Jesus just looks at them. These people that represent him. Of course, he wasn't meaning that temple but he's going to give them a sign, right? We all know this. It's coming. He's going to show up and he's going to do something. It's called his death and resurrection. And so they demand a sign and he says, you know what, I'm going to give you that sign and by my death and by my resurrection, when I'm raised from the death, you're all out of a job and this temple is obsolete. Why? Because I'm the ultimate sacrifice and everything you want, I'm going to remove from you because I am the Lord of this house, not you. So what happens? He says this was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed in the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. I love this. Just take a moment. God is always building, preparing. Even at the beginning of his ministry, he gives stuff to his followers that they'll remember later to build them up. Hmm. Well, the story comes to an end this way. It says that now, while he was still at Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name, but Jesus Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knows all men. He did not need man's testimony about men, for he knew what is in a person. Jesus starts his formal ministry after this encounter and he starts healing and casting out demons and teaching and crowds begin to swarm around him. They cannot believe this is happening and they start to believe in him. But do you know what the scripture says? He doesn't believe in them. He won't entrust himself to them. Why? Because he has issues? No. Because he knows their hearts. He knows that this crowd is there because they want a political Messiah that's going to get rid of the corruption and Rome, and you're going to do it by sword. And he's like, I am not interested in what you think this is all about. I'm not interested that you think I am a person I am not. Yes, I am the Messiah, but not the way you think. And oh, here it is, everyone. Here it is. You want a show, and I want followers. I want followers. And then the story closes. John the Baptist, God the Father, God the Spirit, Mary, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and now crowds. In some form or some way, something is beginning. Some form of trust, some form of belief, some form of faith, but not, it's not clear yet, it's muddy. But it's the beginning of the journey. Now many of us sitting here today, and many of you watch online, You're not followers of Jesus yet, and we just are so deeply thankful you hang out with us here. And this, of course, is your beginning, too, to see if you'll really embrace Jesus or not. Will you try to make him what you want him to be, or will you actually embrace him for who he really is? Will you let him become Savior and Lord? Will you actually come to a place of belief, or will you actually not? Never forget that Jesus, we've seen this in chapter two, by His words and deeds, claims that He has the power over shame and the power over faith and over the power over all, so He's worth trusting. Keep asking your questions. Keep wrestling, because belief isn't just a moment, it's a journey with multiple moments. But to us who are followers of Jesus here today, this is what I'm going to ask for some more attention. This leads myself and we as a family here at C4 back again to the message that God has been speaking so clearly in this season to our church. God today gives us two very strong images of what it means for God to move anew or afresh in his people. The cleaning or the cleansing of the temple and the giving of new wine are both rooted in love, are both loaded with renewal language, are both signs of what could and must be in our lives and our church. These two episodes, when you put them together, actually paint the picture of what revival really looks like. Jesus comes and he demands his temple be in order. He demands that his father's temple be in order, that he is glorified. He comes and he flips tables. He loses it in the right way. He confronts our sin. He begins to talk to Christians about wrong motives. He begins to say, I will not let anyone at C4 who claims to be a Christian appear godly but not have the power behind it. I am not interested in a dead Christianity. I am interested in a vital, authentic, wrestling Christianity. Jesus shows up in periods of revival at his sovereign choosing And he says, my temple is mine. It is time to make all things right, all secrets exposed, all darkness brought to bear. And usually revival preachers stop there. But they forget that the other side of revival is not just holy confrontation, but it's holy party. He comes and gives new wine. There's a new season of joy. The best will be saved for last. There's a party coming, and and there's joy, and there's life, and life in the full. See, Jesus comes full of truth and grace. What we're praying for in this church, what we're wrestling God for in this church, is to come and do both in C4 and not relent until it's done. I am asking Jesus to show up in holy anger among us. I am asking Jesus, the Lord of this church, to come and love-soak lordship, to come and expose us and set us free from anything that appears godly but is not godly. I am asking Jesus to do this in my life and our life, but I'm also asking him to come and give us new joy, new wine, a new party, a new love, a new season of duplicated life. God's miracle was that he gave the best wine. He didn't substitute what was missing. He gave more than had been before. I want, and I'm wrestling with God, to do more here than he's ever done in our good history. Do you think God desires to give you the best of himself? The answer is yes. So let's just camp on those two things. Jesus cleaning the temple in new wine. Preachers 100 years ago used to preach messages like, what if Christ came into the temple of our lives? But let me put it this way. Jesus, my friends, is coming into this temple. He is coming and he's calling us to be clean like we've never been before. Like our prayer last week when we prayed out of the story of John the Baptist, so the prayer that many of us, not all of us, prayed last year, God, do anything, anything in our lives for your glory, our freedom, so the world will see Jesus clearly. We're asking that in this church that Jesus would walk into his temple, look around and do house cleaning that he desires. We're asking Jesus to take his rightful place in our motives, our actions, our lives, so greater things will come and we actually get to be free. And never forget as Christians, the temple is no longer in Jerusalem. The temple is you. The Apostle Paul wrote these words again, 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know? That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom is in you, who you receive from God. You are what? Not your own. You've been bought by a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Jesus owns this church, Jesus owns us as a community. He has the right to come in at any time because the temple is God's ground. It's dedicated to him. It's the place of meeting between us and him. And that's why we are willing slaves to Jesus and he is master. But what I never caught is this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about the cleaning of the temple. But what I never caught is most scholars believe it happened twice. John's account happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the other three happen at the end of his ministry. He deals with the market issue at the beginning, and he deals with the house of prayer issue at the end. You say, why do you bring that up? Let me tell you, because Jesus keeps coming back until it's right. We are asking God in this church to do something he has never done communally to show up in every family and every child and every young adult and every adult and every person and make things right as a Christian between us and him so we will become shining examples of what it means to be a believer. We are inviting his chastisement. We are inviting his lordship because he never does it to humiliate us. He does it to humble us. Why? Because there is freedom when Jesus shows up and cleans his temple. So the great image of revival is when a church willingly says to God, come, get us. We want it. We're desperate for it because we realize that our future's at stake, our kids are at stake, and the world is at stake. We don't care anymore. We must decrease, and he must increase. Come, have your way in your temple. That's the heart of this. Chuck Swindoll wrote this prayer. We'll pray at the end. He said, Lord, I recognize you're the owner of my temple. I willingly submit to your authority, of your word. I confess that I've allowed corruption to take up space that's reserved for worshiping you. I freely admit I I don't have the power to remove this on my own. Cleanse me, even if I must endure hardship or suffer affliction in the process. Grant me the courage to remain steadfast at your work. Grant me patience to endure the process and provide extra encouragement, God, when my patience wears thin. Then let me rejoice when your temple is pure again. I cry out like David, created me a new heart. See, that's the prayer of a church that isn't playing anymore. But then on the other side, there's this great party, there's a promise of new wine. so let me just say these words, please, and then I'll be done. New wine is given when old wine loses its value in your life. I love when Kent Hughes, a pastor from the States, wrote this. And, And please, 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 cell phones down, like, engage. No matter who you are, he preached, no matter what wines you have tested, there comes a time when the exhilaration and excitement of life just wears out. For some of us, it's going to come sooner than later. Often, it's actually when life is at its best, when you've got lots of money and friends and you have a warm place to sleep, but the wine fails. Here's the phrase I want everyone to hear. Life loses its sparkle. It can happen in your teenage years. It's an epidemic in university and college. It's more of an epidemic in your middle years, but it catches every one of us. That's why the miracle of new wine is so important. Every one of us will find that the exhilarations of life, if they're our focus, they're going to fail. You know, teenagers, you young adults and teenagers here and online today, you hear people say all the time, you only get one life to live. Get all you can out of it. Live life with gusto. Because people are really trying to tell you it's going to run out. You know, people cope with the loss of sparkle in different ways. Some are not as extreme as Hemingway or Nietzsche. Many of you settle for gray days. You clench your fists and you just go on with life. Others of you become bitter and sour. Others fight. Others just give up all hope but keep living. See, here's the point. All of us need joy from Jesus. See, there's nothing intrinsically wrong, he writes, with the natural joys of life, but a time will come when you've seen everything and and you've done everything and there's nothing else to bring exhilaration back to life. He writes, you know, the wines of intellect are the ones that actually tend to last the longest. But it was Solomon, the greatest man, the greatest wise man on earth, and who wrote in Ecclesiastes in verse 18, the very last one for much wisdom comes sorrow, and, and much more knowledge comes much more grief. John comes and actually says something that is countercultural to even church crowds, and here it is. John implies that actually life gets better, not worse. If you are open to Jesus doing a new thing in your Christian walk. I want to say this to you this morning. You don't have to end up bitter. You do not have to end up dark or jaded. You do not have to end up overcome or sour. You don't need to give up. There can be new wine for many of you that have been walking for Jesus for decades. I I just got to say this. I wrestled all week in prayer. And so hear me when I say this. It's out of love. I want to speak to all of you who have been Christians for years. I mean decades, there is nothing more powerful, there's nothing more beautiful, there's nothing more inspiring to meet a person who's been a Christian for a long time and still loves Jesus. There's nothing more powerful when I, when I hang out with people in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s, in their 70s, and they've been Christians their whole life, and they are the ones demonstrating to me that they have not allowed all of this to consume them. There is nothing, let me say it this way, I'm 37, and I am desperately looking for a lot of you to lead me. And I guarantee you that if I'm looking for that, all the people my age, and the young adults below us, and the teens below, they're looking more. We're desperate to see if Jesus still matters when you're 60. We're desperate to see at 70 if you'll be the first ones to say, oh God, clean your temple and give me new wine. We're desperate to see because you've done life and we haven't yet. We want to know that when all life has lost its sparkle and you've had all the crap that we will all experience, you turn around and you're the first person to demonstrate to us that you want new wine and you want the temple to be clean and you demonstrate not by what you do but who you are that Jesus would revive you at your age. That is the most needed hope my generation and those underneath are looking for. And I'm asking you, why are so many of you the last people to ask for revival? Young adults should not be leading this church in this charge. You should. You should because you know Jesus. And you've walked with Jesus. And yes, life has lost its sparkle. It's going to be for all of us. But I'm asking you, Jesus says, better wine. The best wine happens later after it's all run out. I'm begging you, please ask. Because if you ask and your life is transformed in your 50s or 40s or 60s, we're going to go, oh my goodness, it's real. It's not just some generational thing. Jesus is really moving at C4. I am begging you as a 37-year-old to ask for greater new wine. This is what my prayer was for you this week. Psalm 92 the righteous flourish like palm trees, they'll grow like the cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord, they'll flourish in the courts of our God. Here it is, they will still bear fruit in old age. I'm not saying you're old, older. They will still stay fresh and green. I want to meet people in this church who are fresh and green and experience the best wine And say, yes, we've had horrific things happen in our life. And yes, we've lost dreams and disappointments. But let me tell you what Jesus did in my life this week. Let me tell you the new life. Let me tell you how my prayer life has changed. Let me tell you how God has changed my heart. And he hasn't done it in 40 years and he's done it again. Oh, Jesus, do it in our church. Because then it will be real. It will be real. God comes to us and he gives us two images of the best wine And of temple cleaning. And our simple prayer as we prepare to respond is this. Oh Jesus, do it so it will be real and not invented. Oh Lord, hear our prayer at this moment as a community. I'm so thankful for a few things. One thing I'm really thankful for is that this church has four generations and not one. It's unusual. In my prayer as we try to navigate all this together because it's difficult is that Jesus, you would become so paramount in our church that those things that could divide us would become secondary. I pray, oh Jesus, you'd come and clean the temple. We pray that prayer like Chuck wrote. Oh, come, no matter the cost, give us patience to endure. If we need to suffer, let us suffer, but come and do it. And second of all, I pray especially for so many of my friends here, Jesus, who have been faithful to you and they have lost so much in life because life is brutal sometimes. And I pray that you would not only give them new wine and substitute what was, I actually pray for better wine and the best wine that the testimony in this church would be that Jesus has done a greater and a greatest thing. So we who are watching Will not also become jaded and skeptical and broken. Oh Spirit of God, bring Jesus' Lordship and His love into this church, into our motives, into our money, into our power, into our sexuality, to everything that makes us us. <laughs> and I just want to say it this way: you have to show up to the wedding. Because we can't invent any of this I keep wrestling with you Lord because you are promising and you're faithful and I know you love this church and love me more than any of us ever will so I end by saying your kingdom come and your will be done on earth at C4 in our family as you've ordained it sovereignly providentially in heaven amen Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church, or give to this ministry, visit our website, www.c4church.com.